Okay. Yeah, we lost. Let's see. We have. Well, we had 24. We had one that dropped over the weekend who hadn't even taken the exam. So we're down to 23, but that's still missing eight people. So is the first exam that bad? Okay. Average score was a 77.2, which isn't horrible. There were a number of real good scores and a number of couple not so good scores, but they are available up on D2L. I did have, I'm still waiting for, I have three people who missed on Friday who are still here, so I'm going to wait and give those back on Wednesday and hopefully can get those exams taken care of without having to make up a new exam. So I'm hoping I can get ta things taken care of by then. So if you want to see yours, I can show it, you can take a look at it after class. If you want to see your grades, again, are up on D2L so you can go look at what point percentage you got and I'll go over the exams a little more detail than on Wednesday. So we can do that. But overall, I said your grades are up there. Overall, a 77 is not bad for the exams. And I will tell you, there are, there are people who get, and I've had students go through my exams getting 50% of them and still end up with a B in the course because you have all these other things. You have homeworks, you have article reviews, you have uh, quizzes, you have you know, all sorts of other assignments too that pull up your grade. So you can not do well on, you cannot do well on the exams and still do fine in the course as long as you're doing the other stuff. Now if you're not doing well on the exams and you're not turning in the articles and you're turning in half the homework and skipping through a third of the quizzes, then that's not good. But you can do poorly on the exams and still do, well, do overall do well in the class. So just to let you know that that, that, is, that is a possibility and don't let one bad score on it completely scare you. But I do like to have those up and ready because today is your you know, last deadline to get out of the course without a grade. So if you really want to get out of it, don't. I think everybody's doing it. There was nothing that was really stood out to me that was horrible in it. Um, but this is your last option to drop without me having to sign a drop form and assign you a W or an F grade. After today, that's, that has, you have to have some grade on, the, on your thing. Yeah? How does the W affect your GPA? A W is not counted in your GPA. But it does affect, if you have too many W's, you can be put on a W suspension. So you can be suspended from the school if you have you know, too many W's grades. It can affect your financial aid. You know, if, you're dropping out of the, if you're dropping out of the class, it can affect your financial aid award. Well, dropping the class in any way can affect your financial aid award. If you bring, go below full time, then your financial aid would be less to a half time. If you go below half time, then there'd be nothing. But I just like to let you know, you know, you have, you have today to look at that and decide this is the last time that you can actually still go over to the Welcome Center and drop without me signing a form. You can just take the form to them and say drop. That's the same. This is the 50% refund. So if, if you drop tomorrow, no matter what you get, you've paid the full tuition for the course. So if you're going to stay through tomorrow, you may as well stick it out because if you're staying and trying, I'll still give you that W at the end of the semester. I mean, I'll give it to you, I can give it to you on Wednesday, I can also give it to you at the end of the semester as long as you keep trying and turning in assignments. So, you know, up to you, but I like to make sure you have that option and like to remind you that today is the last day for that. So coming up this week, we have a homework assignment that I handed out last week that is due on Friday. And that's homework number two. First solar observations are due again on Friday. And that's just any observations you've happened to get, date, time, sky conditions, object height, and shadow length is all I need for those. And I'll take a look at those and give them back to you at the beginning of next week. Quiz two, which for us will cover chapters two and three, 
is going to be available from the Friday through Monday. So you'll have a second quiz up here similar in content and everything to the first. And then the following week we have an article review that is due, the first one, and I showed you some of the possible uh, um, articles that are available up on D2L for you. You're welcome to use those or one of your own. And then also that Friday the first iTunes quiz will be available. That will be available again Friday through Monday. And the pictures that it covers will be everything from August 20th, the first day of classes, through the Wednesday before the exam, the 19th of September. So any picture in that range, whether it was a class one or not a class one, can be covered. So you know, reviewing for that, you just want to be able to take a look at those. You know, it is online, so you will have time to go back and glance at a picture if you need to refresh yourself of something, but you don't want to depend on researching things because it will take a certain amount of time and you only do still do have a limited amount of time for it. Question? There's 12 quizzes, 12 questions on the quiz. So there'll be 12 questions randomly picked out from those dates. I write a question for each date. So as I do the podcast in the morning, I write a question based on the information in that picture and it will take those 30 some, 30, 30 uh, questions and it'll pick 12 of them for you to answer. So they, it'll be randomly picked out. I'm not picking out specific ones so I won't concentrate necessarily on ones we've talked about but I won't avoid ones that I've talked about in class either. They'll be just randomly picked from among those. Any questions? No? No? Okay. Picture of the day for today then, for September 10th, is Curiosity on the move. And Curiosity rover landed a little over a month ago now. And it stayed at its landing, the Bradbury landing, for quite a while. First couple of weeks. And the little numbers there show the location of where it was on each day of the mission, with the first day being the day it landed. So for the first couple of weeks, it didn't budge at all. It just stayed there, checking out the instruments, making sure everything was OK, checking everything in this, that general area. And now it started moving. And you can actually see the trail of where it was on day 16, 21, 22, 24, 26, and 29. So you can actually see how it's been moving over that time. It hasn't moved very far. Not that you can tell that just from the picture itself, right? It could have moved many miles or it could have moved a few inches depending on how that picture is set up. But here's our scale down here for us. And this is about 100 meters. So it's moved not quite 100 meters from where it landed right now in the first month. Slowly exploring and getting its feet, just sort of exploring the, the surface. It's heading towards this interesting area over here, Glenelg, which is and if you can look at it, you can see how there's like one kind of terrain here, one color, another color, ter different, different terrains, different styles of terrain. And it's sort of where everything comes together. So that's where it's heading to explore. That's about 300 meters away on this scale. It'll get there in a couple months. And I know if you're the fastest runner in the world, what, you can do the 300 meter in about 30 seconds? Right? Well. If you really wanted to, you know, this is the size of a car, it could probably go even faster. It could actually get there. Thank you. You know, it could get there faster, but if it tips over along the way, it's done. Right? Tips over and falls over, we're done. You can't do anything. Plus, it's also not just going that slow, but it's also observing, stopping, exploring the area as it goes there. So it's going to take its time getting around to this area and exploring everything as it goes. So it'll stop and look at this, these rocks and this crater and these small impacts and what's going on and trying to better understand the surface of Mars. 
Now this picture was taken not from Curiosity. This was actually taken by the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, which is in orbit around Mars. Satellite we have orbiting Mars, which is exploring the entire surface. So we have two different spacecraft here telling us about two different parts of Mars. One is telling us a general picture of the entire planet and taking pictures of the entire area. This just happens to be one of the pictures it took. The other is giving us very detailed exploration of just a very small part of the surface. Curiosity is not going to be able to explore the entire planet. It's going to be able to explore a small chunk of this, of this planet. But it will give us much more detailed images, much more detailed analysis than we can possibly get from the overall, the, from, the orb, from the orbiter. So you get two different things and we learn about, you learn very important things about Mars from it. Alrighty, questions? No? Alright, we're ready to go. All right, we were on chapter two, spectroscopy. And I believe this is where I ended up on Wednesday. I gave you Kirchhoff's laws, which said three, for three different things and told you how, when you're going to see each type of spectrum. So you see a continuous spectrum. when you have a hot solid, liquid, or dense gas. So it's a solid, a liquid, or a dense gas. So something that is very, very hot in terms of a solid, liquid, or a very dense gas like the sun. So if you heat up a filament in a light bulb, that would be a hot solid. Feeding heat to the sun would be like a dense gas. Any of those things are going to give you a continuous spectrum. When you, when you split it up into the colors, you're going to get the entire rainbow. You're going to get everything. You see an emission spectrum. When you have a low density hot gas, hot low density gas. So a hot low density gas, not near as dense, not near as dense as the sun, much less dense than anything we're used to on Earth. But you heat up that gas, it excites it, and it causes it to glow with those bright lines that we looked at previously. And in fact, this is one of the labs that we'll do coming up here. You'll actually look at the spectrum, and we'll see the emission spectrum of various elements. So we'll get a chance to have you look at those and actually sketch some of those in one of the labs coming up here. So an emission spectrum, that's the emission spectrum. That's a hot low density gas. The other one that we see quite often in astronomy is an absorption. An absorption spectrum. An absorption spectrum is you have that continuous source. You have some hot, solid, liquid, or dense gas that's producing a continuous spectrum. But before that light gets to you, it passes through a cooler, thinner cloud of gas. So you have that bright source, you know, some star. It passes through, that, that light passes through a dense, through a gas. This would give you continuous. If that light passes through this cloud, when you're looking from this direction, you're going to see an absorption. No, P. 
an absorption spectrum. So you're looking at that, that cloud is taking out those very specific lines, those very specific wavelengths characteristic to whatever that cloud is made up of. And we looked at that, we saw the entire spectrum of the sun where you saw all the different elements mixed in there. And that was what you're seeing. You could see this in the atmosphere of the sun. So the sun itself, the surface deep down, is producing a continuous spectrum. When it passes through the atmosphere and the thinner outer layers of the sun, light gets absorbed depending on exactly what that is made up of. Now the same thing sort of in a picture, again looking at just Kirchhoff's laws again, you look at that gas cloud, there's your hot light source, this could be your star, there's your gas cloud, that could be the atmosphere of the star, or another gas cloud out in space. Depending on how you look at this situation, you can see either a continuous spectrum, an emission spectrum, or an absorption spectrum. If you set your spectrograph and look straight at just the bulb, ignore the gas cloud, it's out of the way, you're looking straight at the bulb, you're going to see a continuous spectrum, everything, red through violet, with no breaks. You're looking at just a hot continuous source. If you look at just the gas cloud, against a cold background of space, you're looking out here, there's nothing behind it, you're going to see an emission spectrum. It's just going to give you those lines characteristic of what it's made up of. Emission spectrum. Absorption spectrum is if you're looking at that hot bulb again, looking at that star, looking at that hot light source through the gas cloud. So the gas cloud gets in your way and it absorbs out those same exact lines that you would have seen in the emission spectrum, it absorbs them out and we see an absorption spectrum. So you're looking at, you're seeing the continuous spectrum, you're seeing that hot star, but you're seeing parts of it taken out based on what this cloud is made up of that's in between us and that star. So it actually takes some pieces out of the spectrum. That's often what we see when we look at stars and we looked at that one of the sun on Wednesday and you saw that again the sun got very very complex, got a very very complex um, spectrum because you can get so much more detail in it and the sun is made up of you know, 90, stuff, 90 some different elements. So these are, what, these are the different types of spectra that we can see. A continuous emission or absorption. And we're going to look again probably on Friday we'll look at the emission spectrum to give you an idea of what they are and how they're, how they're being formed. We'll get some equipment set up here for you to look at those. But where do these lines come from? Why do we get just specific lines? And this, in order to understand this, we had to come up with an entirely new model of, an atom, of the atom. The atom is thought about as, you know, you have a proton at the center, protons and neutrons at the nucleus at the center, and you have electrons orbiting around it. Well, the new model, the Bohr model, B-O-H-R, is what we use, and what it says is that, yes, there's a proton at the center and there's electrons that orbit around it, but those electrons can't be anywhere they choose to be. They can be in this state, so they could be in this orbit, or they can be in this orbit, but they can't be in an orbit like this. They can't be in something else. They can't be in an orbit in here. So there's only very specific orbits that are allowed. That allows for getting only certain amounts of energy that could be emitted or absorbed. If you can absorb any amount of energy, 
then you're no longer going to get those very distinct lines that we see in the spectrum. So this model was come up with to explain an observation that was made that when we look at the spectra of not just stars but even things on Earth, if you split things up into the spectrum, you can see absorption lines, you can see emission lines. And in order to explain the fact that we see them, this model was come up that says, okay, the electron can be here or the electron can be here, but it can't be in between those two states. It can only have that amount of energy or this amount of energy. So that's quite different than the planets. Right? You sometimes look at, a, at the model of the atom being similar to a solar system. You've got the sun at the center with planets orbiting around it. But you can have a planet orbiting wherever you want. This would be like saying you could put an object into an orbit at Mercury's level or at Venus's level, but you couldn't send a satellite to orbit the sun in between Mercury and Venus. Well, that's certainly possible in the solar system. It would not be possible in an atom. There's no way to send an electron into an orbit that is in between those two amounts of energy. Oops. The modern model gets a little bit more, um, <coughs> more detailed than this. Really what, there is, really what it is, it becomes a probability as to where the electron is. Because under quantum mechanics, you can't know exactly where the electron is. You can know roughly where it is, but you can't know exactly. So it's actually what we call an electron cloud. So the cloud is sort of a probability distribution that says, well, you know, most likely the electron is in this exact orbit, but it's got some fuzziness to it around it. Because we're not allowed to know, especially with subatomic particles, exactly where anything is at any given time. You can't measure it that precisely. And if you do measure it that precisely, you've changed it so much that you've changed how it's moving and you're changing then its position. So again, that's just sort of generally how it works. But overall, there is a very average. And these are very much extreme. It's very narrowly defined to this specific area. So it's very, very close to this amount of energy. It's not like you could have any big, giant range of energy. The probabilities drop off to be so small as you get closer and closer in or further and further out from that state that it's really essentially confined to that specific energy. But that's just sort of the modern version. It's not really a specific electron orbiting around a proton like we have in the solar system with planets orbiting around the sun. It's like you know, the Earth has some probability as to where it is in its orbit and it could be a little bit closer or a little bit further away. When you look at the electrons, that's the way it works out. So what happens with these orbits? And we've just condensed them here that you can have one, there's a hydrogen atom and you can have this energy level or this one or this one, put them all together on one chart. And you can, when you get some energy, when some energy comes in, some photons of light, so light energy, heat energy, something that excites this atom, gives it a little bit of extra energy, it, the electron will jump into a higher energy level. So you give this electron, give this atom a little bit more energy, it bumps it up into a higher energy level. And in case of the top, it goes from the ground state to the first excited state, the next region, the next area it can possibly be. And then it's going to immediately drop back down. Electrons don't like to be excited. Atoms don't like to be excited. They want to be in their ground state. 
So you might give them some energy and excite them. They're giving off that energy again right away and jumping right back down. That happens very, very quickly. It takes a very, very <coughs> short amount of time for it to actually undergo this transition. So what's shown in the first one is that you might go from an ultraviolet photon exciting hydrogen atom from the ground state to the first excited state, and then boom, that, uh, that ultraviolet photon gets emitted right back out, and the atom drops right back down. So what's the big deal? Nothing's changed, right? You, get, you absorbed a photon, you gave off a photon. Well, if you notice here, what does change is that this photon came in from one direction, and it goes out in another direction. The atom doesn't remember what direction the photon came in from, so it emits it off in some random direction. And that's part of the reason we'll see emission or absorption because we're changing the direction of some of those photons. So some of them we see from directions we wouldn't otherwise expect to see them. Now that top one is a direct. We excited it a certain amount, it came right back down. The other thing that you can do is have what we call a cascade. You can actually send in one photon here with a little bit more energy, excite your electron to a higher state, this time jumping up two states. Now, it ha- now this, electron has two cho- this electron has two choices. It can jump straight back down and give off the same type of photon that it absorbed, or it can cascade down. It can jump down one energy level here, and then one energy level again, and give off two photons. This is the photon, this is the one that we see in hydrogen. This, this part right here, when we look at visible light pictures of nebulae, you see that reddish glow? That is electrons jumping from the third state. The first is the ground, second, third. So it's electrons that have been excited up to this third state and jump down just one energy level. When it gives that off, it gives off this visible light photon, which is in the red part of the spectrum, that we'll see. Now the electron is still, the atom is still excited here, doesn't want to be, so it's giving off another ultraviolet photon. But the other thing again that you notice, photon came in one direction, went out in this direction this time, and this one, it sends one photon this way, one photon this way, it could send them this way, it could send them back to where they came from. It's completely random, the direction as to where it will send that back. So that's one of the things that's important in terms of forming the absorption spectra. Now, these things get more and more complicated as you get more atoms, more energy, more electrons in the atoms. We looked at hydrogen. Hydrogen is most of the universe. So 90-some percent of the universe is hydrogen. But when you start looking at things like helium, now you have two electrons, so the energy levels are different. When you start looking at things like carbon, you have more energy levels. Two, four, six electrons. So you have more energy levels, much more complicated spectra, much more, many more possible states that it can be in. So we get the, the simpler the atoms, hydrogen is a very simple atom, very easy to figure out the spectrum. When we start looking at more complicated elements, which is everything else, right? Hydrogen, helium isn't too bad, getting a little bit more complicated, but when you start looking at some of these, you can get extremely complicated spectra. The other thing that changes it is ionization. Ionization, taking a chemistry course maybe you've heard of it, ionization is just taking away one of those electrons. 
Now if you ionize hydrogen, that's easy. If you take all the electrons off of hydrogen, well, how many are left? Nothing. If you got no electrons, none of the rest of this matters because you got no electrons to jump between the states. So ionized hydrogen can't give you any. If all you have is ionized hydrogen as protons, it's not going to give you any spectral lines. But if you do helium, you can have helium like this, which gives you one set of spectral lines. But if you've got ionized helium, where you've had enough energy to actually strip off one of those electrons, and now you have an ele- atom with one electron, a helium atom with one electron orbiting it, now you get a completely different set of spectral lines. So neutral helium with two electrons has one set of spectral lines, one pattern that we get that we looked at earlier. Ionized helium gives you a completely different set. Now that's those two. What happens further on? Well, carbon. You can have a spectrum of neutral carbon. Maybe you excite it and you take off one electron. Now you get a completely different set. That's ionized carbon. You could take off two. That's twice ionized carbon. Three, three times. You could take off up to five electrons. Now you have five times ionized carbon and it's completely different. Each of those is a completely different spectrum. (coughs) Excuse me. So each of them is completely different. So you can imagine as you get down further into iron, there are places in the universe where we see you know, emission from iron that's been ionized 10, 12 times. It has you know, half of its electrons, essentially half of its electrons gone. And it gets much more complicated. Now, we don't have to go through the complications here. I just want you to understand that they're there. So I'm not going to ask you to look at the spectra of all these different ionizations, but I want you to know that they do change, and it changes what you're going to be able to see. So, just seeing, you know, knowing that carbon's there, if you don't see carbon from this type of emission, doesn't mean there's no carbon present. You might be looking for carbon with three of these electrons removed. So you might be looking for that instead. Now the other thing that you can get that makes this, the atoms much more, uh, spectra much more complicated is molecules. Now this is, these are both spectra of hydrogen. Okay, so here's the nice simple one of hydrogen. This is hydrogen atoms. So you've got a nice red, red line. Greenish, blue, blue, violet, a whole bunch here fading off into the area. So that's, that's basic hydrogen as we talked about before. Just one hydrogen atom. One proton, one electron orbiting it. That's one of the most simple spectrum you're going to get. Molecular hydrogen is typically the hydrogen we're used to here on Earth. That's hydrogen, which is two hydrogen atoms bound together. So instead of one electron around one proton, you have two protons that are bound together by their electrons that are orbiting. So you've got two protons and two electrons involved. The spectrum gets a little bit more complicated. So if you have molecular hydrogen, you're getting a much more complex spectrum. You get all these red lines, you get yellow lines, a lot more red lines instead of just this one, a whole lot more here, not too much in the middle, and then a whole, almost anything you can possibly get out here in the, in the violet. Almost anything you can possibly get. So the spectrum becomes, again, much more complex as you look at more complex molecules. Now that's, again, that's one of the simpler molecules too, hydrogen. There are much more complicated molecules out in space too. You can get things like carbon dioxide and carbon monoxide that actually exist in molecular clouds out in space. And they come up with much more, much more complicated spectra to be able to understand.
Okay, so again, the idea of those was just that the spectrum does get more complicated, and that's what I want you to know of those. I don't, I'm not going to go through any other details of you know, molecular spectra at this point and ask you to explain how they're, just, just show how they're different, just to know how they are different, and that it's because you're making a much more compli- complex um, atom, or molecule in this case. Now the last section of this chapter is the Doppler effect. This is how we can tell the way things are moving in space. So if something is moving towards you or away from you, it's going to change the wavelength that you see. Now the big equation is given here. And what you have is the idea of the Doppler effect. You're familiar with it to some extent in terms of sound. So in terms of sound, you hear. The wavelength, you hear a sound coming towards you. You hear a fire engine coming towards you. It's a much higher pitch. right? You hear that higher whine as it comes towards you. And as it goes past you, all of a sudden the pitch changed. Well, there's no switch in there that changes the pitch from high to low. That is simply the fact that it's coming towards you. All those wavelengths are getting compressed. The sound wavelengths are getting compressed. If you make shorter and shorter sound wavelengths, then they are going to be a higher pitch. When it goes away from you, all of a sudden they're getting stretched out. So instead of this regular wavelength that you're supposed to get, you're getting a much longer wavelength and it's going to sound a lot longer. Now, to the firefighter on the fire engine, it doesn't sound any different. It doesn't sound any different. They don't know the difference. It sounds exactly the same to them the entire time. But what we get is the wavelengths will change. And what you'll get if you're moving towards a source of radiation, you're going to get shorter wavelengths. So moving towards shorter wavelengths. So if we are moving towards an object, or an object is moving towards us, it doesn't matter. Right? It doesn't matter whether we're doing the moving or it's doing the moving towards us. The effect is exactly the same. If we're getting closer to an object, it's going to be shifted towards shorter wavelengths or shifted towards the blue part of the spectrum. So a blue shift. If we're moving away, it's going to be shifted towards longer wavelengths or a red shift. It's shifted towards the red portion of the spectrum towards the longer wavelengths. How much it's shifted depends on how fast you're moving. And that's what the, one of the versions of the equation is given, is given here, which just says that the difference between the wavelengths, if you look at where the wavelength appears to be versus where it's supposed to be, so it has the apparent wavelength, That's where you see it. That's what you measure. That's what you measure. Okay, I'm looking at this spectrum. I see that red line of hydrogen to be at some wavelength. Divided by the true wavelength, that's, that's where it's supposed to be. So that's where it should be if you just measured it here on Earth in a laboratory with no motions. You know exactly where it's supposed to be. 
that's equal to 1 plus the velocity over, for what we're worrying about, it has, this, it has wave speed, but I'm going to put the speed of light. Because everything we're looking at here in space is going to be moving at the speed of light. Whether we're looking at visible light or radio waves. So this you know, whatever wavelength you're looking at, you know this number. This is what you measure. You, the velocity of light is constant. That never changes. That's all 300,000 kilometers per second. Means that we can figure out, based on this measurement, how fast something is moving towards or away from us. That's not something you can normally, you know, that's one way we can do this out in space that you normally wouldn't be able to measure. You know, we can measure whether galaxies are moving towards or away from us. We can measure stars, clusters, anything that we can take a spectrum of. We can identify some lines in it. We can figure out how fast it's moving either towards us or away from us. Now, the other one just has, again, the frequencies are put in here as well. You can do it in terms of frequency or wavelength. But really, the equation just breaks down to, just breaks down to this. The wavelength you measure divided by the true wavelength is given by 1 plus the velocity divided by the speed of light. Okay. So. so, again, this depends on the only on the relative motion. I kind of mentioned that already. It does not matter who is doing the moving. If you're here, if we're here on Earth and this galaxy is streaming towards us at a very high rate of speed, we're going to see a blue shift because it's getting closer to us. If instead that galaxy was standing still and we were moving towards it at the very same speed, we'd get exactly the same blue shift. There's no way to tell who is doing the moving. I can't tell you who's doing the moving. I can say that this galaxy is getting closer to us, but I can't tell you whether we're moving towards it or it's moving towards us, or maybe some combination of the two. Maybe it's both. Maybe we're going like this together. Boom. And that does happen. We do have a galaxy that is moving towards us, the Andromeda galaxy and actually is set up for a collision many billions of years from now. Nothing you got to worry about. Class isn't going to be canceled or anything. It's well past that. You know, many billions of years in the future. But actually it will, the galaxies are coming closer together and would eventually, at, at current projections, would collide again a number of billions of years from now. But again, are we moving towards Andromeda? Is Andromeda moving towards us or are we both moving towards each other? That's not something we can tell from this Doppler effect. I can tell you that they're getting closer together or they're getting further apart and that's it. And that's the whole idea that it really just depends on the overall motion. And that's sort of what some of what's being shown here is just kind of how it works as this object is moving relatively towards, say, towards one of these shuttles. So as it moves, these wavelengths get bunched up closer together, as I mentioned with the sound waves. The wavelengths get bunched up. Shorter, shorter, shorter wavelengths is bluer light. So you get them bunched up and you can actually see them in the blue. Here, away from it as the source is moving, they get stretched out more and more. Longer wavelengths towards the red portion of the spectrum. And it shifts the entire spectrum. So it doesn't shift just one line, it shifts every single line in the spectrum. 
So if you look at this here, the middle spectrum, these are all hydrogen. Hydrogen at rest, exactly where these wavelengths should be. If it's moving away from us, everything is shifted a little bit towards the red. Doesn't mean that purple lines become red. It just means they become a little bit longer wavelength than they would have been otherwise. In this case, you might go from 653.6 nanometers for hydrogen. That's where that line is supposed to be. It might be 657 nanometers if it's moving away at 300 kilometers per second. So you have to move pretty fast to get a good shift on it. You're only shifting a very tiny fraction. The other one at the bottom is showing the other direction. If you're something's moving towards us at 600 kilometers per second, that wavelength might, instead of being 656.3, might be 655 nanometers, a little bit longer wavelength. But it doesn't matter which one you look at. These are longer. These are longer. These are longer. The whole spectrum is shifted. So it's a complete shift. Now this is something we found out um, early on back in the 60s when we were understanding some very distant objects which are called quasars. They look like a star, but they really had unusual spectra that nobody could identify. And it turns out what was found out was that they were moving away from us so fast that they had shifted all of these hydrogen lines had been shifted so far that nobody had identified them. They'd shifted so far out of where they should have been that you know these hydrogen lines, instead of being here in the blue and violet, were shifted way over into the red. So nobody identified them at first. These objects were just moving away from us at an incredibly high rate of speed. So not just 300 kilometers per second, but at velocities approaching, you know, getting to be a good fraction of that of light. All right. Well, let's summarize chapter two. We'll finish up here. Um, wave. We talked about the different properties of the wave, the period, wavelength, amplitude. We talked about how electromagnetic waves were created by charges. The visible spectrum is just part of, it, part of the electromagnetic spectrum. It's the different colors of light, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, and violet. But that's just that very tiny portion of the entire electromagnetic spectrum, which includes all the rest of this. It includes radio waves, infrared, to the longer wavelength of visible light. And it includes ultraviolet x-rays and gamma rays to the shorter wavelengths. So very high energy, ultraviolet x-rays and gamma rays, much higher energy than we're used to with visible light. Infrared and radio waves, much lower energy. We also discussed how we can tell the temperature of an object by looking at, its, at the radiation coming from it. If it's emitting a black body spectrum, which would be a continuous spectrum, we can actually measure the temperature. So we're sort of getting some ideas as to how we can learn about velocities. We can learn about compositions. We can learn about temperatures from all these objects without ever touching them. You know, we're not going and sticking a thermometer in the sun to measure its temperature. We have other methods that can actually let us determine the temperature of the sun. We mentioned a spectroscope, which is something we'll see some spectra as we go through the class. What it does, a spectroscope, and actually we're going to use one on Friday, splits a light beam into its components and makes a spectrum. Spits it up into the, into the colors of the rainbow. Again, we mentioned how these are formed. I just went over those again this class. Continuous spectrum. In order to see that, it's a solid, a liquid, or a dense gas will form that type of spectrum. 
A hot gas will give you an emission spectrum. And if you take that continuous source and shine it through a thinner gas, a cooler, thinner gas, we give an absorption spectrum. And again, these two spectra are the same if we're looking at the same element. If we're looking at hydrogen, the same spectrum that we see here as bright lines will be exactly the same spectrum that we see here as dark lines. So we'll see the identical spectrum regardless of which, as long as it's the same element. And finally, what I did through today, I gave you a basic overview of how to explain the spectra, how the models formed. You have very specific orbits where the electrons are allowed to occupy. Where are the electrons allowed to be? They're only very specific states. And that explains why we only get certain energy levels. We get those emission and absorption lines because the electrons jump between those energy levels. So as electrons are excited, they jump up to a higher energy level. That absorbs energy, absorbs light coming from it, giving you dark lines. They also jump back down, emitting light, giving us a bright line spectrum. So you can actually form both of them from this emission and absorption. It just depends on where you happen to be viewing from. And finally, we finished up with the Doppler effect today. And what it does is it changes the frequency of the radiation, changes the wavelength. If you're moving towards something, it's going to look like it's got a shorter wavelength than it otherwise would. If you're moving away from something, it's going to have a longer wavelength. And it depends on only the relative speed. The bigger the, the, bigger the relative speed, the, the larger the shift. So if we're moving towards something very slowly, the shift is going to be imperceivable. You know, you're not going to be able to drive towards that red light fast enough that it's going to look green. Yeah, if you could go fast enough, that would happen. But it's well over half the speed of light you have to be traveling to shift your red light into, gr into green. But it would happen if you were driving, if you were able to drive that fast. But most of the speeds that we're used to traveling, the shift is there. And you could probably measure it. It's extremely tiny, though, because we're used to traveling at such very tiny fractions of the speed of light. So it's a very, very small change. So for most of our shifts, this is essentially 0. You have a very small number divided by a big number. 1 plus a teeny tiny number is pretty much 1, meaning that there's almost no shift. All right. Well, let me see. Let me bring up Let me just bring up the intro to chapter 3 on telescopes. I really won't get much into it till Wednesday. But let me at least mention a little bit about chapter 3 on telescopes and we'll get into looking at telescopes a little more detail on Wednesday. There's a couple different telescopes shown here in the intro picture. This is actually a set of telescopes down in Chile, the very large telescope, very large mirrors. Um, mirrors that are, some of these are 8 or 10 meters across. So you're talking about telescopes that are 25 feet. The mirrors are 25 to 30 feet across, so very large size telescopes. A much smaller telescope, but one you may recognize, the Hubble Space Telescope up there in orbit. Its mirror is about a little over two and a half meters across, so about two and a half of these across. Still a pretty good size mirror, but not near as large as some of the largest telescopes on Earth. But nice because it's actually up in space, so it is above the Earth's atmosphere, and therefore it doesn't have to look through the Earth's atmosphere. So what we're going to look at in this chapter are optical telescopes as the primary kind. That's what astronomers have used since from the time of Galileo. 
really up through the middle of last century that was about all we used was optical telescopes. And that's what we're used to thinking about, you know, looking at a telescope with your eye. But there are other kind of telescopes that we'll talk about as well. Telescope size and how that is important. We tend to keep making bigger and bigger telescopes, but to, to be able to see fainter and fainter objects. So telescope size does a lot of things in terms of collecting more light. If you've got a very big telescope, you can collect a lot more light. You can also get better resolution. Resolution just means you're able to see finer detail. So that's one of the reasons we put Hubble Telescope up there. Not because it's one of the biggest telescopes, but one of the biggest problems with trying to see, get high resolution images, is that the atmosphere blurs up everything. So you've got this great big telescope that can get you real high resolution, but the atmosphere messes everything up. So getting even a smaller telescope up above the atmosphere is a big help in terms of getting much, much better images. Radio astronomy was the first look at another wavelength in astronomy. Again, it was all visible light from ancient times up till the middle of the last century. Radio astronomy was the first one that we were able to actually observe another wavelength. And if you recall, radio waves and visible light are the only two that make it really unimpeded through the atmosphere. The ones that actually can get through our atmosphere and be observed on the surface of the Earth. That's why other astronomies are later. But we do look at now, we can look at some infrared astronomy from the Earth. That gives us more information on objects that we didn't have before. We also now have satellites that can look at objects in the ultraviolet or with x-rays or with gamma rays. So we can actually observe at the entire electromagnetic spectrum, you know, instead of looking at just that little portion of it, that little teeny tiny portion that was visible light, we can look at the entire spectrum and study objects like the sun, like galaxies, through at each of these and it gives us an understanding. We were limited. For thousands of years we were limited by only what we could see with our eyes or with optical telescopes. Now we have a completely number of different views on the universe that we can use that have shown us objects that we didn't even know were there because they didn't emit much optical light. There are lots of objects that are invisible optically but may be very bright in x-rays or gamma rays and emit a lot of their radiation there. So I'm going to go ahead and stop probably there and instead of trying to get in to start about the telescopes we'll work on that on Wednesday. I'll actually get through describing the telescopes. So, questions, questions? Otherwise, have a good day and I'll see everybody on Wednesday.